All right, so every week I have every intention of doing what I told you I was going to do last week, and then stuff just keeps on happening. And so I, I have to keep kind of, uh, I want to keep you guys sort of at least a little bit on the cutting edge of the things that keep on occurring. Um, I, I saw something show up over the weekend, and I can't remember if the first time I saw it was sometime late Saturday night or sometime on Sunday, um, but it led me down this rabbit trail. And so I want to explain this rabbit trail by playing a game with you guys. You know that little cartoon that has two pictures side by side, and you're supposed to circle all of the differences that exist between those two pictures? And sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's not. These are, these are two versions of the same photograph. And that is linen um, in both of them. You can see it most clearly on the left, and there's a reason for that. But it's linen on a makeshift podium inside of Moscow giving one of his stump speeches. And there are technically two differences between the two photos. Start the Jeopardy music now. There are two, technically two differences. Yeah. There's two missing individuals on the stairs. So on the left-hand side, there are two guys standing up the stairs there. I cannot remember the name of the guy at the bottom of the stairs. The guy at the top of the stairs is a dude named Trotsky. Early on, Lenin and Trotsky, uh, Trotsky was kind of Lenin's right-hand man during the revolution. When they got sideways and Lenin was in power, Trotsky was essentially thrown out of the nation and he became persona non grata. The picture on the right is, is much harder to see because the whole thing has been airbrushed. So long before Photoshop, this is what would happen in the Soviet Union. And you can look these pictures up. They're amazing. Some of them are funny, and some of them are like this. They're kind of a little hard to tell what's happened. Some of them have been so badly airbrushed, I mean physically airbrushed out, okay, it's long before software. But they would do this. The original photo was published with Trotsky and the other guy at the bottom of the stairs. Trotsky and the other guy at the bottom of the stairs become um, enemies of the revolution. So their propaganda units would go back through these photos and they would airbrush these people out so as to tell you they didn't really exist in the first place. So why wouldn't you just keep that photo on the left and then just rewrite a couple of textbooks to say, yeah, they were good to start with, but they were, you know, they ended up bad and we, we shot them or we exiled them to Argentina. I think that's where Trotsky ended up was in Argent Argentina. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to reset history itself, literally rewriting history. So some things just simply have to disappear, okay? So Stalin did this, Lenin did this, the Soviet Union did this, all kinds of people got disappeared in photographs over and over and over again. Now, why is that important? That is important because of something else that happened over the weekend. So the um, National Education Association had their annual meeting. The NEA is the nation's largest teachers union. And they had their national meeting from June 30th to July 3rd. So they closed up on July 3rd, and they dumped on their website the minutes and the action items that came out of their business meeting. Now, some of them were so um, shocking and radical that they started making the rounds, and people who tracked this stuff just immediately saw what was happening on the website, and they were taking screenshots and so forth. And I thought, okay, so this is so fascinating. I have to see for myself what this is, this is like. This morning, I go to, I find the link, I go to the link, and I read through this thing, and it, it prints out to be like a page, page and a half. It's really not very long. It's just one of the action items that was a part of their business. But the nation's largest teacher union that oversees teachers in over 14,000 school districts, as well as a lot of university professors, will unionize through the NEA as well. So it's the most powerful teachers union in the U.S. 
This was one of their resolutions and what they decided to do and what they asked for over $125,000 to accomplish. You know, there's always money that comes along with some, you know, national union and so forth. Here's what the NEA decided to do with public school systems through teachers and their curriculum. So from their 2021 business meeting that completed business on July 3rd, 2021, um, their first line item here is A, share and publicize through existing channels information already available on critical race theory, what it is and what it is not, have a team of staffers for members who want to learn more and fight back against anti-CRT rhetoric and share information with other NEA members as well as their community members, meaning parents, um, people who have kids inside of schools or who might ask questions about curriculum that is like this. So there's a couple of things that are just absolutely dramatic with line item A. And the first is this. If you listen to NEA members, their leaders, or their supporters on cable news or you catch them in major media outlets, the official public line is we don't do any of that stuff. We don't teach CRT. It's not in our curriculum. And besides, you don't know what it is. It's really not that big a deal anyway. And you've got to love that move because this move is very popular. We don't do that. It's not a big deal anyway. <laughs> Meaning, okay, yeah, we do do that. You just don't understand it. Um, but it's not that big a deal. Well, sure enough, their item says, we're going to gather all of the information that we have and through every available channel that we have, we're going to let our teachers, our schools, and our parents know what this is and we're going to work against Pastor Phil. <laughs> we're going to work against parents who show up. And these, these videos are going viral, right? Parents showing up at public school board meetings. They don't like the curriculum that they're seeing. They're getting frustrated. So these videos are just all over the place now. So they have decided we're going to dele delegate money and staffers to push back against anti-CRT rhetoric, while at the same time sending their emissaries online um, and to the Atlantic and New York Times and Washington Post saying, we don't do any of that, right? It's a beautiful little shell game that gets played. Line item B, same thing, same part of the business. Provide, and, and you, again, you got to love this language. They're not going to create it. They're going to provide an already created in-depth study. Okay, I've, I've lost my screen again, so you guys have it, I think, in your notes. Provide an already created in-depth study that critiques empire, white supremacy, anti-blackness, anti-indigeneity, racism, patriarchy, cis-heteropatriarchy, cis-heteropatriarchy. Nine syllables, so you know it's got to be true. Eight syllables. You know it's got to be true if it has that many syllables. We're going to critique capitalism, ableism, anthropocentrism, or the centrality of human beings in creation, and other forms of power and oppression at the intersections of our society. We're going to talk later about why that word is so important, intersection, at the intersections of our society, in that we oppose attempts to ban critical race theory and or the 1619 Project. All the cards are on the table. So we already have this curriculum. It's preloaded, and we're going to start getting it out, and this is what we're going to deal with. And the first thing that we're going to critique is empire. I mean, that is a morally loaded word. Do they mean like Darth Vader empire? They, need, they mean a capitalist free market society lived in by white men. That, that's what they mean by empire, okay? That's what white supremacy um, racism, patriarchy, cis-heteropatriarchy, capitalism, which is understood to be fundamentally racist and oppressive. And we oppose attempts to ban critical race theory. So that's what a lot of these parents are trying to do. That's what a lot of these um, investigative journalists are trying to do. So they're going to oppose every one of those attempts and or to get rid of the 1619 Project. 
That was a journalism project, a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, project published by the New York Times that intended to move the ideological founding of the United States from 1776 at the signing of the Declaration of Independence to 1619 when the first African slaves landed on the coast. Now, the 1619 project is a Pulitzer Prize winning thing, so it's attracted a lot of attention as well as piles and piles of analysis and criticism. It has been torn apart so many times that the author herself of the project has said in the New York Times, it was never intended to be history. It's just a journalism project. Well, it's being taught as history still. It's a whole curriculum, right? So again, this is how the shell game works. And so the NEA is saying, this is what we're going to do. We skip down to D um, in, the same, in the same part here. And the NEA, the nation's largest teachers union, is going to join with Black Lives Matter at school. Doesn't that sound like fun? That'll be good. And the Zen Education Project. You need to know that Howard Zinn is just, he's not just bad news. He is poisonous news. So Howard Zinn has written one of the most used textbooks in American history in high schools and colleges. And your first clue as to what his book is like is the title of the book, A People's History of the United States of America. So if a nation is called the People's Republic of North Korea, what do you think that's really like? So A People's History by Howard Zinn comes from this point of view. So he doesn't tell history as much as he goes through um, perspectives. He walks through American history through the perspective of the oppressed. Um, and again, like the 1619 Project, because it's so popular, it has drawn a lot of attention and criticism. And again, has just it's failed the test. It's not historically sound or accurate. Um, it overblows certain things. It misunderstands certain uh, movements in history. But nonetheless, it's still a very popular um, textbook. So we're going to join a Black Lives Matter at school in the Zen Education Project. To call for a rally this year on October 14th, George Floyd's birthday, as a national day of action to teach lessons about structural racism and oppression. And it's not just one day, they want two days. They want the next day to be used to gather up everybody else that they think needs to be remembered under the banner of critical race theory and structural racism and oppression and so forth. So the NEA wants their teachers to take two days out of school to spend all of their time on this stuff. So this is, again, what the NEA wants to do. The last couple of lines um, in that document, and I've given you guys, or at least we've spread out copies of that document, um, not only just for your own fun reading at home, but there's another reason why I'll explain here in just a second. Um, the rationale or the background behind this uh, line item of business is that they say the USA's economy and social order is built on interactions between different cultures slash races. So that's a statement of how our society works. It's not, this is one of the ways in which we interact with each other. It is, now remember, we, we started to see this in unique ways last week. We'll see it again this week. This worldview is a totalizing narrative. It takes everything and puts it in one basket. So the NEA's rationale for this line item of business is that the only thing that explains the culture of the United States of America are the interactions between races and different kinds of people. That's it. So that's our rationale. Now, I've also given you the link. Now, a fun thing happens if you go to that link. So this morning I go there, and it's short, so I print it out, and I, I copy it out, and I stick it in a document, and I save it. And I sent the link to a couple of people who I thought might just get a kick out of reading this little thing. One of them was, was Pat Pace. So she writes me back a couple hours later, said, I just glanced at it. I, w I had more time a minute ago. I went back to the link, and it's gone. So I went to the link, and sure enough, it, was, it says this link is now broken. So the document doesn't exist on the website anymore. I went back this afternoon um, uh, before tonight just to kind of, you know, double check. Maybe, maybe it was a server glitch. 
Now this link to this document just goes to their front page. You can't get to this document anymore. Who else has scrubbed their website as they describe themselves in their own terms? I downloaded it. You guys have it? I downloaded it. I've got a copy of it. That's right. <laughs> yes. And who else scrubs history so that you no longer believe the way the phrase goes, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? You saw this, but your eyes are lying to you. What we're going to tell you now is that it never really exists. And it's interesting. So this happens on July 3rd. It starts, it starts circulating in the public on, on Sunday, July the 4th. And by Tuesday morning, July the 6th, it is gone. Did they decide they're not going to do this anymore? No. They just want to maintain the public face of, we don't do this kind of stuff and you can't prove it anymore. It's not on our website, right? So this is how it happens. This is how the shell game works. You know, we say one thing over here and we say the other thing over here. We try to create this disconnect. We get enough people to follow us over here and then we can treat the rest of you as if you just really don't know what you're doing. One of the reasons this kind of conversation is so important is that when you go online to look at this stuff, when you go online in social media and watch other people talking about this kind of stuff, when you watch videos about this kind of stuff, you will hear nine times out of ten, this stuff doesn't really exist. You really don't know what you're talking about. That's really not what we said. We're really not doing that anyway. It's just descriptive. It's not prescriptive. You will hear that over and over and over. And you have to know that none of that is true. This is a real worldview that is attempting to change the way everything happens and the reasons why everything happens. So I keep telling you guys, this is what I'm going to do next week, and then something happens, and man, we've got to, you know, have fun with pictures. We've got to take a look at stuff like this. So the National Education Association, right? We just need to know that this is actually happening and uh, their intention, the reason this business happens now is so that they can prepare their curriculum and their work for the fall of 2021. So however broadly this gets dispersed, their intention is that this starts making its way into at least 14,000 different public school systems in the fall of 2021. Now, the other... Um, the other thing I want to do, instead of just, just telling a story about the National Education Association, is I've got one more piece of vocabulary that we need to talk about. And again, this is another one of these words that most of us have not heard until the last three or four years, maybe. Um, it started showing up after some interesting public events and so forth. Um, but the term is intersectionality. And we have only heard, most of us have only really heard of this term for a little while now, but now it's, it's really pretty common. And you're going to hear this word thrown around a lot. It was inside of that NEA document, the intersectionality of, you know, uh, treatments between different power structures between different people and so on and so forth. What on earth does intersectionality mean and how is it used? The easiest way to understand the concept of intersectionality, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw is a CRT theorist who coined the term intersectionality. And she coined it to describe the various ways in which different people experience oppression. So um, um, a white male experiences no um, oppression. Um, a black male is going to sit at the intersection of that, um, um, of that oppression. So he has one way, and this is the way the image works. He has one way of being hit by a car. He stands at that intersection. But if you're a black female, you stand at, the, you stand at two intersections. Not only are you black, but you also are female. So you have two layers of intersectionality, two ways you can get hit by oppressive power um, and oppression. Now you add layer upon layer upon layer and the work of intersectionality is designed to figure out why your life is the way it is because of how many intersections of oppression you actually sit at. 
So it's not just skin color or ethnicity and gender. Now it's um, sexual preference, gender preference, and on and on it goes. So individuals can stand in the middle of several intersections of oppression, okay? So on one level, it is a descriptive theory, but on another level, it's not. This description of intersectionality comes from one, again, of the um, college textbooks that describes the theory itself and how it's used and where it came from. If you're into this kind of stuff, um, Patricia Hill Collins is another name that you see a lot inside of this. I'm just going to read through this. We won't spend a heck of a lot of time unpacking it, but you've got it um, to understand it at least a little bit and see where it comes from. Intersectionality, Mike is just as upset as I am about this whole thing. <laughs> Intersectionality is a way of understanding and analyzing the complexity in the world, in people, and in human experiences. The events and conditions of social and political life and the self can seldom be understood and shaped by one factor. They are generally shaped by many factors in diverse and mutually influencing ways. When it comes to social inequality, people's lives and the organization of power, that kind of language, again, friends, is ubiquitous. Hopefully, we're growing accustomed to that. And the organization of power in a given society are better understood as being shaped not by a single axis of social division. In other, in other words, what gender are you, male or female, or what race are you, what ethnicity are you, be it race or gender or class, but by many axes that work together and influence each other. Intersectionality as an analytical tool gives people better access to the complexity of the world and of themselves. Now, this one is an interesting one. I mean, it's a little bit of a neologism. Um, it hasn't been around for that long. I think it was the early 90s uh, when that paper was written, the coin to the term and so forth. But it does just have this descriptive element to it. Certain people in the lives that they live are the result of certain kinds of things that have happened to them because of their class or because of their gender or because of this or that. And it helps to understand why this happened and this happened. It originally had application in the field of legal studies and of law, um, of case law and so forth. And it had this certain kind of layer of value to it. And it does have actually a descriptive element to it that can just be used to describe certain pieces of culture and how some things happen. What happens again with intersectionality and critical race theorists, and, and this, this is a great term, um, critical, critical race theorist is a, is a long word. It's, it's a long term. And so people who are that, who self-identify as critical race theorists, call themselves crits. C-R-I-T-S. So, crits don't use it as just a descriptive term. It turns into um, a prescriptive term. It actually helps describe and form and shape reality and interactions between people. So, there's no such thing, especially in the world of sociology and, and law and politics, there's no such thing as a theory that is just a description. All of them also have application, prediction, and disciples who live and do certain things in a certain way because they believe in that theory. All right? Does that make sense? So a lot of people will say it's just descriptive, and you can say, okay, yes, it is descriptive, but it's not just descriptive. It does all kinds of other things. So the gal, Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined this term, she goes on in the mid-90s to write this really influential paper called Mapping the Margins, and it's all about intersectionality and so on and so forth. And what she does inside of that paper is she redefines the terms black, white, and male, and female, strips them of their meaning, and says that those terms are all social constructions. So the, all of those terms have been given to you and me by people who are in power. And again, who's in power in this world? White males. <laughs> it's been given to us by Eric Lind. It's what's happened. Yes, yes. 
Everything is parallel. We're just prancing through fields of grain. We're not going to be hit by anybody. All of those terms have been imposed upon us, and all of the definitions of those terms have been constructed by white patriarchy in order to structure society the way that white patriarchy wants it structured. This is how she talks inside of that document. And so she says it's all social construction, and the way we're handling that social construction is wrong, but we have to redo that social construction. Guys, that is really, really significant. A paper in the mid-90s from one of the most influential people in this field argues those terms don't have inherent meaning. They've all been constructed for us and given to us by oppressors So what we have to do now is redefine all of those terms, male, female, all of these terms have to be redefined, not in terms of biological gender, but in terms of power. So that's how now we're going to redefine all of these terms. I've been telling you for a few weeks, these theories aren't fixing problems around the edges. They're changing the core of the way that we see things. So she, as sort of the fountainhead of this theory, is doing more than just describing. She's actually trying to change the way we understand reality. Intersectionality specifically is responsible for a few things that that we hear a lot now. It leads to the development of what we now call identity politics. So politics, um, political parties, political ideas that are based on certain identity groups of people, and we have to do this for this identity group and this identity group. That actually arises out of intersectionality. We've talked a couple of times about this phrase, standpoint epistemology. Again, it's that 50-cent philosophical word that simply means the only reason you know what you know is the place in which you stand in the world. So all knowledge and all truth is subjective. And again, in the intersectional world, in the CRT world, truth is only accessible by the most oppressed among us. Nobody else has access to truth, which is why we have to listen to them and just accept what the oppressed say as being actually true. So again, there's no such thing as objective truth inside of this worldview. It uh, lends support to the social justice belief that all human interaction is nothing but power and oppression. And it went very quickly from gender, class, and ethnicity or race, and it started collecting all um, sexual and gender identifications, making it very hard to target this and pin it down. When you actually get into this, and when you actually start kind of digging through it um, and reading it and trying to analyze it, it's... um, it's like nailing jello to a wall. And that's part of the intention, is it? No, we didn't really mean that. We mean something else. It reminds me, I was telling Heather, it reminds me very much of all of the reading that I did 20, 21, 22 years ago on postmodernism, um, the philosophy as well as postmodernism inside of the evangelical church. You just, they wouldn't let you nail them down. No, that's not really what I mean. That's not really what we do. And yet they write books and publish books and articles, and they say that's exactly what they mean and what they do. So in some ways, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just different vocabulary. So it becomes... Now, again, this is another substantial issue. It becomes a universal explanation for all inequalities. Intersectionality becomes... When you read their literature... It is the explanation for why things are different for different people. It's because they sit at different intersections of oppression and power. So, I get this. Okay, Thomas Sowell is very good in in critiquing this, but, but again, let's make sure we understand what that means. Every difference between individuals with different intersectionalities. Now, who knew we'd be talking in this kind of language on Tuesday night? Every difference between individuals with different intersectionalities is external, not internal. It is a result of things that have been done to you. It's not a result of whatever kinds of abilities you may or may not have. 
Okay, does that make sense? Part of, <laughs> no, it doesn't. There is no allowance for internal differences between people. So let's say we have two people sitting at the same set of intersections of oppression and power. We, we would then, okay, now let me walk all the way through this so that I don't say something goofy. We would then assume that the outcome of their lives, um, everything that we would call a benefit in their life, and let's just do something crass like, uh, like income, educational, educational attainment and income. If two people sit at exactly the same intersection because there are no internal differences in their lives, they are going to end up in exactly the same place. Now, let's say one of those two individuals... So that's equity. That's equity. That is exactly what it is. It's equity instead of equality. Bam! Gold star, 100 extra credit points right down. <laughs> that's right. So it doesn't allow for those two people. One of them has... Um, a, a disposition toward coding and is very good at it. The other one has a disposition toward playing the violin and is very good at it. But if you've ever tried to get into a local orchestra, you know you're not going to make a million dollars a year playing the violin, even if you're very good at it. You can actually make a lot more money if you're coding. Those kinds of internal differences, you have to then go back and say, something is still wrong. We've reached an inequity, so there is still a power and oppression external difference between people. So we've homogenized groups of people and said they are all the same, and we're going to judge everybody in that same group as if all of them belong to that same group. So intersectionality ends up doing some really strange things. Yeah. Those people will run the budget in 20 yeah. years. Yeah. Yes. And the state of California is a petri dish for, for these theories, especially the city of San Francisco. You should just kind of look up some of the news of things that have been going on in San Francisco the last three or four days. It's exciting. I mean, they are, I'm telling you, they are this close to utopia. I mean, <laughs> one more law, and everybody's going to want to live in the city of San Francisco. I promise you. I promise you. <laughs> Bring your own tent. If you have your own tent, it's utopia. Yes, sir. Up to a certain dollar amount, um, they won't even allow prosecution for shoplifting, and it's in the hundreds of dollars, not the dozens of dollars, the hundreds of dollars. So stores are closing at 4, 5, 6 in the afternoon before it gets dark because they can't stop the looting. In the city of San Francisco proper, 45% of businesses are still not yet open in downtown, downtown in the city of San Francisco. So yeah, I'm telling you, one more law like this, and it's going to break out in peace, love, and harmony in San Francisco. It's going to be beautiful. This is correct. We have, we have someone who has figured out how to work the vocabulary so that now we know. Now we know. 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I wanted to make sure, um, because tonight where we were headed, eventually, is into some more of the theological reflection on all of this, because this is important for us as Christians to ask these kinds of questions. Well, how much of this can be supported biblically or, or, or just sort of falls right in line with the biblical story. I mean, we are talking about racism and injustice. And last week, you know, we sort of made sure we understood that all of those things really do exist. So when we deal with CRT and we deal with intersectionality and we talk about wokeism, we're not denying the problem. We're asking, are these things good solutions to the problem? Are they biblical solutions to the problems, right? And so I want to uh, kind of roll a little bit further into some of that theological reflection. We'll talk very quickly over some of this because we um, touched on this last time. And again, we see uh, with how intersectionality wants to describe every difference, every inequity between people, just like we saw last time, um, CRT is this totalizing narrative. It is a religion. All of the major components of any major traditional religious faith, you can apply the same categories to CRT as well as its desire to, uh, to convert the unconverted and to change the world and to find utopia. They have an eschatology. So they have a God, the political doctrines derived from Karl's, Karl Marx and all of their, um, their original heroes. They have an anthropology, which we'll make sure we get to tonight, what humans are like and how they should relate to each other. They have, uh, they have a doctrine of original sin, um, especially racism. Racism is the original sin, is what needs to be dealt with. They have a doctrine of creation, not the act of creation, but physically what the world is like and what's important, and it's radical environmentalism. They have a vision of justice, equity, not equality. They have prophets, um, the various heroes of their doctrine. They have priests, the academic experts and diversity trainers. They have saviors. They're looking for activists, the revolutionaries who actually make this happen. They have a doctrine of salvation. Uh, and this is a question we're going to get to. I'm going to have fun getting into this question. Who are the scapegoats? That is another way of asking the question, who do we have to get rid of? Who needs to be sacrificed to make sure all of this grows, goes well? And it is hardcore works righteousness. We might get to that tonight. They have a vision of history. We've talked about some of that so far. They have um, a doctrine of spiritual formation, how forgiveness works, what redemption and reconciliation look like. You have to go through training. You have to go through struggle sections. You have to um, provide reparations and so forth. They have a doctrine of revival and renewal. Some people will just use the phrase the great awakening. Others who believe this will avoid that strange word and they will call it the new great awakening inside of our culture. They have a doctrine of the family. BLM wanted to disrupt the nuclear family. There were reasons for that. There are insiders and outsiders the way that a cult would handle that. It is a certain form of fundamentalism. Agree to all of our tenets or you're out. And they have an eschatology, its vision of social and political utopia. All right, so um, just a reminder of these two quotes. Again, this book by Vodi Bauckham. The anti-racist movement has many of the hallmarks of a cult, including staying close enough to the Bible to avoid immediate detection. It has this great sounding language. A lot of people say, that sounds good, I'm on board. And hiding the fact that it has a new theology and a new glossary of terms that diverge ever so slightly from Christian orthodoxy. They use the same words, but they mean something very, very different. So it is a new theology. And then this other book, Awake Not Woke, while a woke ideology appears as a benevolent um, fight for justice, it is far from that. It lures us in with an appeal to our better natures, then replaces intelligible principles with distorted ones. Just try reading Kimberly Crenshaw and some of these other people. I sent some excerpts to uh, Heather and Molly today, and uh, it's, it is exciting stuff. Intelligible principles with distorted ones resulting in incoherence and chaos. And those are exactly the kinds of words that will come to mind when you read a lot of the stuff that they write. Okay, let's get into a little bit of the theological reflection specifically. Um, anthropology according to this worldview versus anthropology according to a biblical worldview. 
So we're talking again about anthropology, meaning essentially what are human beings like and how do we relate to each other and to the world around us, okay? This is a basic sense of what we mean by anthropology. One of the fundamental assumptions inside of this other world view is that human beings are born basically good. It's a certain kind of neutral slate that human beings are born with, and it has yet to be written upon. So that human being is born morally neutral, and then what happens to that human being is that society and culture and institutions begin writing on that slate, and that human being um, gets corrupted. They fall apart. Um, and everything that's wrong with that human being can be described in terms of how culture has broken that human being. Institutions have broken that human being. So if you believe that sort of thing, then what you need to do is you need to tear down and reform and replace all of the structures that are wrong. You need to put different people in power, different philosophies in power, okay? One of the significant philosophers who give us this point of view in the modern world um, is another French philosopher. Now, remember what you do when you hear a French philosopher says, you immediately go, oh, no. <laughs> Rousseau is one of the most influential philosophers in the last 250, 300 years or so. He is the philosopher behind the French Revolution, whereas people like Locke and Montesquieu and some others are the philosophers behind the American Revolution. Now, we're not going to get into this deep, deeply right now, but the French Revolution um, was an absolute mess. Slaughtered well over 20,000 priests, killed tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of their own citizens. And do you know, what's, do you know what finished the American Revolution? A peace treaty and a trade agreement. Do you know what finished the French Revolution? His name was Napoleon Bonaparte. And continental war for the next couple of decades in Europe. That's what finished the French Revolution, right? Rousseau is the philosophical spring of the French Revolution and this view that human beings are born basically good, right? So the solution to our problems rests in changing power structures and institutions and changing judgments about behavior in individuals and the way that we do that. Well, let's ask Scripture what Scripture thinks about human beings. What's wrong with us? Is it me personally? Um, or is it the institution that I belong to, the school that I went to, and quite frankly, the family that I was born into, right? The mess that that created, right? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> What's wrong with the world? Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Here's what the Apostle Paul has to say. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. And in case you don't quite get that yet, he's going he's gonna to grab, it's like this grab bag of phrases from the book of Psalms. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Biblical anthropology from the fall through the Apostle Paul describing this to us is just the opposite of this other point of view. 
is that I am what's wrong. The sin that is inside of me, that's what has gone wrong with this world. And the reason there are cultures and institutions that are, imp- that are oppressive and full of injustice is because they are full of people like me. They're full of human beings. That's what's wrong with those things. Not a single one of us even seeks justice in our own human nature. In our sinful nature, none of us even know what peace means. I mean, that's some pretty serious stuff that Paul is laying out for us, right? So all of us are caught in this notion of original sin. So the angel tells Jacob to name the child that Mary is going to have Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin. So biblical anthropology has a clear sense of what's wrong, that is the sinfulness that is inside each and every one of us, and how we rectify that sin. We don't rectify it through revolution. We don't rectify it through political change, institutional change, educational theory. That's not how we rectify what's wrong. We can fix some things with that stuff, but what rectifies what's wrong is the birth, death, resurrection, and soon in coming back of Jesus Christ who will save his people from their sin. So this is a significant theological moment where these two worldviews just go on completely different tracks. Now, if we're talking about, let's see what I've got here. All right. If we keep talking in terms of anthropology and how we're dealing with problems, CRT separates, and we've talked about this a little bit, it separates us into groups identifies individuals by our groups, and then all groups get classified by things like skin color and other intersectionalities. That's just how we classify groups, and if I can pinpoint you there, you just belong in that group. Now, one institution, and, and again, this is, this is just kind of common conversation now in the evangelical world. One institution that needs critique is the white evangelical church. If you read the right articles, you follow the right people, you can even read this in um, major media outlets that aren't Christian in any significant way at all, the phrase white evangelical. It's not a descriptive term, it's an insult. That phrase white evangelical carries behind it the weight of everything we have described so far. So that white evangelical is the one who is the, the, at, at the pinnacle of the oppressor class. So now you've got to understand, and I know I say these things and they sound broad and sweeping, but this is just how it works now. If you read somebody in the Christian world who talks about the white evangelical church, they have pulled into their theology this entire worldview. If you listen to sermons, and there are a lot of sermons out there by popular Christian pastors who talk about needing to apologize for their whiteness, or talk about what it means to be a white evangelical. They have pulled into their sermon this entire worldview. Okay, so we have to be very careful with this kind of stuff. It's not just a descriptive phrase. It's intended to bring all of this insult in with it. So we've talked about this a little bit. Whiteness is inherently a racist disposition. It's not just the color of skin. It is your racist disposition inside of this world. So racism and discrimination then become the same thing as whiteness. All right, so there's a popular author out there right now. His name is Jamar Tishby. One of his books um, sort of hit at, at this, this really popular point, The Color of Compromise, um, early in 2020 and through the middle of 2020. He's written another one also called How to Fight Racism. The Color of Compromise is an interesting book because the first half of that book traces um, racism in America's past. And then roughly the second half of that book is, is basically CRT kind of stuff. This is how we fix it. We've talked about this before. This is how CRT works. We talk about past offenses. We pull the guilt of those past offenses into the present and say now all the guilt of that and the shame of that belongs to you now. And that's a little bit what the color of compromise does in the way that it works. But more than just the book, Jamar Tishby is an interesting dude. He's published by Zondervan. Um, He often writes for Christianity Today and other major evangelical pieces and so forth, but he's also the purveyor of a website called 
thewitnessbcc.com. So it's a really interesting website to go through. So thewitnessbcc.com, run by Jamar Tishby, is a platform for his social media program that he calls hashtag leave loud. So hashtag leave loud. What do we mean by, what does he mean by hashtag leave loud? So he is now helping to head up a movement amongst black evangelicals to leave, quote, white spaces. So the witnessbcc.com exists to encourage Christians of color to leave churches that have white people in them. You can no longer be heard, you can no longer be believed, you can no longer be valued, and there's article after article after article on that website about how this works. You now have to enter black evangelical spaces. That's the only place where we're going to find our prophetic voice. This is the kind of language that's inside of that website. So Jamar Tishby, um, touted inside of evangelical circles, is at the head of hashtag leave loud. I find that interesting because of Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 14 through 16. Thank you, man. For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The verses before this are literally about the ethnic hatred that existed between Jews and Gentiles. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh to the dividing wall of hostility. This wall between us is a wall of hostility and hatred by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So Jesus makes peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility that naturally comes in the divisions between races and genders and classes. So Jesus takes those walls that are walls of hatred and he tears them down so that in church, those things aren't supposed to exist. Now that's a work in progress for the church, for sure. What that means, how that works, does someone walk into our uh, body that smells different, looks different, are we okay with that? It is a constant work in progress. But when we're talking about what the church is intended to do and what Jesus does, he said, I see all of those dividing walls that mean you hate each other, and I tear them down. Jamar Tishby and hashtag leave loud come in and say, we're going to start building walls of hostility between people with different melanin content in their skin. So he does exactly the opposite of what Christ and the gospel do inside of the church, okay? So again, you follow this through. He's very popular among young evangelical ministers. Um, he carries a lot of weight. These guys write very well. They're very smart. They're very bright. They're very entrepreneurial. They're very proactive. The question always is, is it the gospel? Is it scripture? Is it true? What is it actually doing? All right, so we've got that going on, but then we've also got this going on in the field, in, in the world of anthropology, what human beings are like. And we've started to see pieces of this as well. Gender and sexuality are now infinitely flexible. So there are movements among some people who live inside of these different corners of the CRT world, especially amongst um, radical feminists and queer theorists. Right? You, gotta, you gotta love these phrase, these queer theorists. To dump every stable definition and category of things like male, female, heterosexual, and homosexual. So even those words, heterosexual and homosexual, we have to strip them of their meaning. Why? Because their meaning's been given to us by the oppressive classes, white male patriarchy. So we have to redefine all these terms. We can't even accept the terms themselves. 
So none of those terms, according to these theories, can adequately define the infinite range of, and we see this phrase again more and more all the time, of pansexuality and the fluidity of gender, right? So we hear these terms and what those mean are, it's so infinitely flexible we have to change all of the definitions and what we do with them. So this quote comes out of this book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Carl Truman, um, a theologian who does a magnificent job of dealing with this. Um, but here he describes just a little bit of what's going on for us in this, in this quote here. This theory, talking about these kinds of things, in this part of the book he's speaking specifically of radical feminist theory. This theory is claiming that the idea of male and female as a natural binary, that there's biologically males and females, is itself merely a means of maintaining heterosexuality as the norm. That's all it is. It's a, it, it's a power move to maintain a certain kind of social construction. On this basis, we could conclude that those alternative sexualities, lesbianism, homosexuality, and bisexuality, are all ultimately defined by and therefore dependent on heterosexuality. True sexual revolution thus requires the abolition of all such categories based as they are on the gender binary, right? So, so this, is, this is, you know, sometimes a little bit thick stuff, but he's just saying they're just socially constructed terms given to us for the sake of power. And so these theories say we have to tear all of that apart and redefine all of those terms. Well, biblically, let's look at a couple of things. So Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 27. So if we're getting rid of male and female, we've got to again ask ourselves the question, well, what does Scripture have to say about all these kinds of things? Not just male and female, but even ethnicity. Does Scripture have, to have much to say about ethnicity? Why it exists and how it exists. So the passage we probably know the best, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, hang on just a second. The NEA has said that we're going to um, put into our schools already created curriculum that challenges anthropocentrism or the idea that humans are unique in creation. So now we go back to Genesis chapter 1. This is at the end of God creating everything else, from tapeworms to blue whales to galaxies and black holes. All of that has been, right, created. And then God creates human beings, and he says, these human beings are going to be in a special place. They're going to have a certain kind of dominion and stewardship over all of the rest of creation. So what does Scripture think about this issue? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. The only thing in all of creation that carries the imprint of, of the creator are human beings. And the only distinction made about human beings in creation is what? Male and female. So that's the distinction that God makes in creation is male and female. So we asked this question a few weeks ago. Why does this worldview want to take the one distinction that God makes and eliminate it and put in its place an ever-expanding number of other divisions that God actually forbids? So does God, what, what, what's the story of ethnicity or nations in Scripture? And this is a really interesting thing. And, you know, if you get into this, you may want to track some of this down. But I'm going to give you a couple of passages of Scripture. Genesis chapter 11, verses 6 through 8. This is where nations get started. So this is after the Tower of Babel. God says, this is it. I'm confusing their languages, and I'm scattering them. Genesis 11, 6 through 8. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. So at this point, we've got one language, one nation in the biblical sense of the term. 
Behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible to them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building that city. So God creates languages and God actually splits the human race spreads them across the globe, and they turn into ethnos, the nations of the world. Okay, so this is where that gets started. So the division is created because of our sin. It's not what a philosopher would call an ontological distinction. It's actually something that comes because of a rebellion and sin. Well, the apostle Paul says something really interesting about this in Acts chapter 17. So Paul is in Athens, and he's talking to the Athenians about what this one unknown God has done. And he actually includes this. And he made from one man every ethnos, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, the span of time in which that nation or group of people would be in ascendancy or exist, however you might want to put it, and the boundaries of their dwelling places, their national boundaries, why would he do that? That they would seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So this plays into the story of Ephesians chapter 2, this is what God does. He confuses their language because of rebellion. He scatters them around the world. They've got these allotted places and periods of time. He does it so that inside of their world and their context, they can actually find God. And then we discover that Jesus does something else. With the Tower of Babel broke, the unity of humanity, what does Jesus and the gospel in the day of Pentecost fix? The divisions that exist between human beings. As a matter of fact, what was it that was so stunning to the visitors in the city of Jerusalem when they hear the disciples all speaking in other languages? They understood them. They heard their own languages. There is this sense in which what was broken in Genesis chapter 11 is being put back together again by the work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So but then Paul comes along and says, you don't get it. We still have these walls of hostility and hatred between us. You keep putting them up. The church is here to tear these things down. And yet we've got this theory, this worldview, that's going to find every different intersectionality, and it's going to start building walls between every one of those. It's going to put people inside of cubicles and inside of groups and say, this is, this is your level of oppression. This is your kind of oppression. This is your kind of oppression. And we're going to deal with you as different groups of people and it just keeps on creating. I mean, how much love and peace was spread during the riots of 2020, right? It's just wall of hostility after wall of hostility after wall of hostility. It all goes back to what got broken in the book of Genesis and what the gospel is trying to fix. So again, guys, this is significant to me. And whether or not it's significant to you, I'm going to say it one more time. <laughs> so that I am on record, and who knows what's going to happen with that, right? But this CTCRT, intersectionality worldview, eliminates the one human distinction that God makes and makes many new ones that are expressly forbidden by God. So is this a biblical worldview? Can we jump on board and say, yeah, we all see the same racism and oppression and this is the right way to fix it. I don't think so. I really don't. I don't think we should support any version of hashtag leave loud. You know, this kind of thing just continues to create these divisions where the gospel does something that human beings can't even fathom. Paul quotes these scriptures saying, in our human sin, we don't even seek justice. We don't even know what peace looks like. So in our sin, this is what we do. The gospel is this Jesus Christ who brings peace instead of hostility. 
So oftentimes, understanding these worldviews and getting used to this really strange language and hearing Pastor Phil say similar things over and over again from a different point of view so that we can understand it actually should lead us to a much better understanding of the power of what we actually believe, the power of what is actually true and possible in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beauty and power of what happens inside of the family of God when it works the way it is supposed to work. Because, man, the world does something completely different. We're going to pick up next time with the matter of original sin. What are the two different versions of original sin, of forgiveness, of how you fix it, um, of what it is and where you go from there? So we're going to pick up there next time. um, And I would say I guarantee you we're going to start here. But who knows what's going to happen between here and next Tuesday night. But we're, we're going to make our way further through this theological interaction with the issue. Let's go ahead and pray. God, you are good. You are so good. And so often we just do not understand the power of what you have provided for us in the work of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We get caught up even ourselves in our own sin nature, in our own confusion about how our relationships with other people work, with how even our own structures work, and how often so many of our churches have bought into the walls of hostility instead of understanding what it means to be people of peace, to allow Jesus to destroy those walls of hostility. Those things sometimes, Father, are so difficult for us Sometimes those things require significant work of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts and minds and lives first. And God, where those walls exist inside of us, just keep tearing those things down so that the church of Jesus Christ, the family of God, can be a genuinely different thing in this world a thing that truly exemplifies the kind of peace and justice that is brought by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is hope in Jesus and in Jesus alone. May we see that and figure out what it means for us to truly live that and be those kinds of voices, gospel voices, in the world around us. It so desperately needs this story right now. Father, we pray those things. We pray we would see you more clearly even as we try to understand the world around us and we'd be even more in awe of what you do with sinful human beings. Father, we ask these things. We pray your continued grace and strength this week. In your magnificent name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next time.